Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 342, New Year, New Podcasts. In this episode of the Trinity's Podcast, I'm going to talk a little bit about what to expect from this podcast in 2022, but my main purpose today is to share with you some podcasts that I regularly enjoy listening to. 2021 was a pretty good year for me. I had COVID at least once and survived. I managed to put out 27 new podcasts And I helped to put on the first ever Unitarian Christian Alliance conference, which was a ton of work. I also had one article published in the Journal of Analytic Theology. It's the paper that finally resulted when I was able to finish what you heard a draft of in Trinity's podcast 230. Back when I started this podcast, I was doing four episodes a month for 11 months a year, which was a lot of episodes. At that time, I was younger, and my job uh, allowed me larger stretches of unstructured time. In 2021, I was trying to do three episodes a month in the first three Mondays of every month, and I almost accomplished that, not quite. In 2022, my intention is to do two episodes per month. And the reason for that is I'm kind of the king of unfinished writing projects. I could tell you about all of them, but I think it would bore you. I think I'm kind of a perfectionist. I don't feel like when the pressure is on and the time is short that I skimp on quality. I just produce less. Unfortunately, when I'm producing three podcasts a month, it's very hard to move forward with writing projects, given that I'm also working very hard at my day job. Now, by divine providence, my day job may allow me a little more flexibility in this coming year. And so, God willing, I'm hoping I can get some of those writing projects moving. I find writing to be incredibly hard, and I hold myself to a very high standard with it. And so, when I am grinding forward writing something, if I am not moving forward, I just have to quit and go on to something else and then come back to it. And so, I have writing projects that have languished for many years now. And I think some of that material deserves to see the light of day. So, something has to give. If you want to see some highlights from 2021, I've done a blog post for that at trinities.org. I noticed in reviewing the year that I did a lot fewer interviews than I had done in previous years, and I'm kind of curious what you all think about that. Do you wish I did more interviews? Do you wish I did more interviews with Trinitarians? Do you wish I did more interviews with Unitarians? Let me know what you think by leaving a comment at the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. So that's all I wanted to say about the Trinity's podcast. Let's get down to business with some of the podcasts that I regularly listen to and enjoy. The first one is the Reluctant Theologian podcast by Dr. R.T. Mullins, also known as Ryan Mullins. Dr. Mullins is doing some of the very best work these days in analytic theology and philosophy of religion. And I believe Dr. Mullins is an ordained minister actually, in a very Bible-centered, restorationist denomination. If you don't know who he is, you really should. 
And specifically, if you've never heard of so-called classical theism, you need to look that up and see what the hubbub is all about, and then investigate what Dr. Mullins has written and podcasted about it. Same goes for the baffling traditional doctrine of divine simplicity. Most lay people have no idea what that is, but it's all the rage in certain theological crowds. Dr. Mullins is the kind of guy who gives philosophy a good name. He's humble, he's kind, but he doesn't accept junky ideas just because a great man has said them. He knows how to argue, and he knows how to object. He knows how to put together a series of fair and carefully targeted objections. And you should pay attention to his objections to divine simplicity and to classical theism and to various views about God and time. He's also the rare philosopher of religion who cares about what the Bible says, and he trenchantly points out that there is absolutely zero biblical support for this idea that God is timeless or, quote, outside of time. That's absolutely right. So he's turning over quite a few prestigious apple carts in his search for truth. You can learn a ton from him. So here are a few bits of his episode 85, What is Time? I want to talk about the question, what is time? So Marcello Oreste Fiocco complains that contemporary philosophy of time does not attempt to answer the fundamental question, what is time? In most debates in the philosophy of time, they focus on different issues about the direction of time, tense versus tenseless theories, what moments of time exist, and, and so on. And those issues have played an important role in debates over God's relationship to time, but it seems curious that people are debating God's relationship to time without first addressing what time is. I mean, most discussions start by quoting Augustine saying that he does not know what time is, and then they just kind of carry on from there. I think that's less than helpful. Skipping a bit up to where he talks about his own view. So let me go back to Fiocco, who I mentioned earlier. Fiocco offers a similar analysis of time that distinguishes between time itself and moments of time. Now, following his lead, I say that time is a natured entity that makes change possible, that is the ontological source of moments, and is that which orders a set of successive moments into a coherent timeline. So I take a moment of time to be the way things are, but could be subsequently otherwise. A moment is a when things or events happen. Moments could be thought of as abstract or concrete. For example, one might say that moments of time are nearly maximal proposition-like entities that can obtain or fail to obtain. These proposition-like entities have built within them earlier than and later than relations with other possible moments. And then moments can be successively ordered in different ways. So a timeline is a particular coherent ordering of moments. But most philosophers say that the particular ordering of moments is a contingent matter. So a theologian might say that whichever particular order of moments comes about is due to the providential activity of God. So God is the sort of being who can fulfill all the roles of time. God is an independent, eternal, and uncaused substance who supports the existence of everything else and makes change possible. God can explain the existence of moments, explain why things exist now, and explain why certain events exist in earlier-than-relations with other events. So time is nothing but God on Sharomani's view. Now, identifying time with God is a major theme within Indian philosophy, but it also has precedent within Western thought. 
In reflecting upon early modern British philosophy, Emily Thomas distinguishes between three different kinds of absolute theories of time. First, there's what she calls Morean absolutism, named after Henry Moore. This view says that time is identified with God. God and time may be conceptually distinct, but in reality they are the same being. Now, this Morian absolutism, that's able to avoid this contradiction because it's not saying that there's this independent substance that God does not create. Instead, this view, this Morian view, identifies time with God. But Emily Thomas says there are two other views about God and absolute time within the early modern period. So the second view she calls the Gassendist absolutism, named after Pierre Gassendi. This view can maintain that God and absolute time are independent substances, though time somehow depends upon God. So they are distinct substances, but, you know, maybe God creates time. Or maybe time just kind of emanates from God. Those are some options. So what you'd be doing there is you'd be avoiding the contradiction because you would be denying that time is this, this eternal, uncaused substance. And then the third view that uh, Emily Thomas identifies is called Newtonian absolutism, named after Isaac Newton. So this view makes no connection between God and absolute time. I don't really know how you can use this to avoid the objection I've just laid out. Here is an important historical point, though. Emily Thomas points out that Newton himself is actually a Morian absolutist. And in fact, she thinks that the majority of the British absolutists about time were Morian. What she has in mind are thinkers like John Turner, Samuel Clark, Samuel Colliber, uh, and a whole list of others. There's only a minority of figures affirm the Gassendus view, such as Walter Charlatan and Samuel Parker. So there is precedent within Eastern religions and within Christianity itself for identifying time with God. There's another question that I want to tackle in this episode, which is what was God doing before he created the universe? This is basically the question that we heard in the last two episodes with Eric Wielenberg and with William Lane Craig, trying to figure out what exactly was going on before God created the universe, and how does it relate to what God is doing subsequent to creating the universe? Well, St. Augustine jokingly says that God was creating hell for people who ask these kind of questions. Then when he tries to give a serious answer, he says that, well, you know, there just was no time before creation. God creates time with creation. So what was God doing before he created the universe is just a meaningless question. I'm not so certain exactly how meaningless it is because Augustine affirms multiple times in multiple places in his writings that God exists without the universe. The universe is not co-eternal with God. There's an actual state of affairs where God exists all alone. That seems to raise the question, what was God doing? Sure, maybe it's not before he creates the universe, but you could still ask the question, what was was God up to? I like the way the Apostle Paul thinks about this question. The Apostle Paul says that prior to creation, God was planning certain things, doing certain things. This is what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1. I have to ask a very important question at this point. When I look at passages like Ephesians chapter 1, they talk about God doing things before he creates the universe. This is not some non-temporal before, because the Bible knows nothing of non-temporal or timeless existence. All of the biblical words for eternity are temporal terms. There just is no hint of timelessness in the Bible. And the Bible is very comfortable describing God as existing before the universe and is doing things before the universe comes into existence. 
Sometimes I wonder when Christian theologians talk about God being timeless without the universe, I wonder how far away they're drifting from the very biblical phrase, before the world began. If you have to say things like timeless without the universe because you can't say before, well, you're abandoning very explicit biblical language. And I just feel unmotivated to do that today. Maybe I'll be convinced by other arguments that I should abandon the biblical language of God predestining and foreknowing and doing a whole bunch of other stuff before the universe exists. But for today, I think I'll stick with the biblical language of God existing before the world. At the very end there, he was taking a little poke at the view of the uh, famous Christian philosopher and apologist, Dr. William Lane Craig. Guys, that's what an independent thinker sounds like. He reads a ridiculously wide array of historical material with the aim of understanding it and getting arguments out of it, not for the purpose of worshiping the great man and his great body of writings. He cares about the Bible. He cares about truth. Is it easy listening? Absolutely not. It's philosophy and analytic theology done well. So I recommend the Reluctant Theologian podcast to you. It'll stretch your mind. You'll learn a ton from it. Now, you may have noticed that like the Trinity's podcast, the Reluctant Theologian podcast is unapologetically aimed at the nerds. We're trying to be clear. We don't want to have so much technical talk that only somebody with a degree in philosophy can follow what's going on. And yet there is a, an intensity to it. And you have to have that nerd-like obsession, that singular focus, the willingness to really dig down hard deep into a subject and think about a narrow range of things for a long time until you start to gain some understanding of that range of things. It's a nerd fest. I know that's what the Trinity's podcast is. I know that you're that kind of person who wants a deep dive, a person who's curious and who's not afraid to stretch their mind. However, these are not the only kinds of podcasts that I listen to. And I've always thought that one of the gold standards of podcasts generally is This American Life, which is all just stories and emotions and human interest, basically. I'm not going to share any podcasts like that. But when the Trinity's podcast returns, I will share with you a theology-related podcast that appeals to the heart. introduce you now to the Unitarian Christian Alliance podcast, hosted by my friend Mark Kane. This is one of the few podcasts that I absolutely never miss an episode of. This is a podcast where I have laughed and cried an alarming number of times at the episodes, and there really isn't a boring episode of it. What Mark does with radio show quality editing skills is he interviews different UCA members, different Unitarian Christians, and he talks with them about their faith journey, about their lives. And it's fascinating. 
Sometimes it centers around undergoing the big theological change from being a Trinitarian, at least nominally, among the masses, to then thinking it through and coming to a Unitarian understanding of the New Testament. And sometimes it's a lot broader and has to do with relationships and spiritual growth and all kinds of interesting things. The appeal here is broad to all kinds of people and not just the nerds. And Mark Cain does get into some theological reflections of his own sometimes, but it's more of a community-building type of endeavor. A couple of my favorite episodes were 33 and 34 with Unitarian Christian Amanda Dunn, who is a person with a lovely soul who just exudes Christ-likeness in various ways. And part of the story that she's telling is of being a Unitarian Christian and having a close friend who's a Trinitarian and sort of how that went. And then she discusses in some depth how she tried to navigate being a part of an officially Trinitarian homeschool group or collective. Right, This is what homeschoolers often do. They band together with other homeschoolers, pool their resources, find some parents to serve as tutors, and it helps the whole thing to go better. So she and her Trinitarian friend, not the aforementioned one, but one of her local fellow moms in the homeschool group, decide to pray about whether she should serve as a tutor for the group, and they feel led that she should. Now there's this statement of faith that she doesn't agree with, but she joins the group on the understanding that she needs to, you know, respect the boundaries of that statement of faith for the purposes of the homeschool tutoring, you know, work within those boundaries, but she doesn't necessarily have to believe all of it. This reminds me of a time when I was applying for a job at a Christian college that you've probably heard of, but that's another story for another time. Here she is telling Mark about how things kind of came to a head. In the meantime, I discovered the UCA podcast with Mark Kane. Ah, well. And it was such a delight and so exciting, (laughs) and I couldn't stop listening and cleaning because that's how I justify listening. Yes, yes. In that time frame, I listened to Anna Brown's awesome story, and I loved all of her story, but I laughed particularly hard and even retold like three times the part where you guys joke about like Anna envisioning going into work and her boss totally ridiculously walking in with a statement of faith in front of everyone and asking her to affirm it right now. (laughs) And how... (laughs) unrealistic is this? And I I said, yes, why do I live with this fear? This is completely unrealistic. And I really appreciated it because it was funny Mm. and true (laughs) so far. So after a couple of weeks of prayer, both Jennifer and I felt like, you know what? Let's pursue this tutor thing. Let's just see if we can make it work. Okay. So there's a mandatory day of training. I had not signed any additional paperwork. Nothing else had been said of the statement of faith up to this point. I show up to training that day and it was a sad day for me. I was in the process of losing my dog who was like my best friend. Hmm. And I was emotionally very fragile. I wanted to like wear a shirt. Do you ever want to wear a shirt that's like, I'm very (laughs) fragile today. (laughs) Probably my husband would like it if I would wear that. And then he would know like, oh, right. Don't make a funny joke today. She won't think it's funny. I just felt a little beat up, you know, Mm -hmm. and it had just been a long process. 
everything's okay, but I'm sad. I'm feeling easily breakable. So I go to training and the morning is spent as a large group discussing several things. And one of the things that was discussed was what is humility functionally in community? What does humility look like? Okay. There was some back and forth and I thought about it for a while and eventually shared, well, I think that what God is teaching me is that humility is understanding that I am a very valuable piece of a much greater whole. And so maybe I need to spend a lot more time asking what I can give to that whole than what that whole can give to me. Mm. The leader of the discussion was like, I love this, which prompted several of the women to be like, you know what? We just want to say to you that we were praying that you would decide to tutor because we just, we look at your family and their faith and we just see such a sincere Christian walk and we just love you and respect you, Mm. which was really kind. But I'm also like, but you don't know the whole truth. Yeah. So after lunch, we break and we come back and my good friend Kim is leading a smaller training. Okay. Before the training starts formally, about five or six women are in the room and I walk into a discussion already in progress. I sit down and I hear a lady say from across the table, well, yes, she was going to be a part of our campus and she was going to be a tutor. But in the end, she didn't agree to the statement of faith. So she couldn't be a tutor. And then she didn't want to be a part of our campus. Uh And I'm like... Uh Oh, so I look at my friend, Kim, who kind of knows, she doesn't know the whole story, but she knows, she knows there's something for me here. Yeah. And I say, I thought the constitution just says that you accept it and that you can respect it. And she pats my hand and she says, yes, 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 it does. Shh. So Kim is, Kim is talking you down. Kim's like, (laughs) please don't say anything. (laughs) My friend Jennifer, the director, looks over at me, kind of like also starting to panic. Oh. I take a breath and I think, okay, these women that are speaking aren't the leaders, so I'll just let this conversation finish out. But it progresses. And pretty soon this person says, well, here's the thing. That woman didn't even believe that hell is a real place. And if she doesn't believe the Bible's truth about hell, that's not even something important like the Trinity. If she can't even believe the Bible about something like hell, I do not want her teaching my children. Uh-oh. And several women agree. Oh. And Mark, my heart stops. Like, this is the moment that you and Anna told me would never happen. Oh, no. I'm so sorry. And I hold you personally responsible. I just want you to know. Okay. <laughs> well, just a second. I'm, I'm texting Anna right now. Anna, you blew it. <laughs> oh, for a moment, I didn't know what to do. And I just want to emphasize, these aren't women that, like, I don't know. This isn't a conference. This isn't just a large population at church. These are the women who I have toiled alongside. I really care about them. Our kids play together. We have sleepovers. This is a big deal. Yeah. And up to this point, I mean, 
sometimes I thought when I navigate these things, is it wrong of me not to be like bold and outright at all times? But this isn't a matter of that anymore. This is a matter of if I say nothing now, I'm a liar. So I prayed and as quietly as I could to Jennifer, I said, Hey, Jennifer, I think, I think we have to have a, I think we have to talk. And she is mortified. And my friend Kim's face just falls, like melts. And everyone heard me, even though I tried to be quiet and the whole room just falls silent. So I kind of like pick up my things and they all know that this is, you know, I must dissent about something. Mm. And I look at them and I said, something like, I'm sure everything will work out. And I just want you guys to know that I love you. And we walk out of the room and we go into another classroom. And I have to tell you, Jennifer's first response is apology and mortification that this has happened. She said, I just don't know how this happened because I prayed and ask God, and you prayed and asked God, and we both felt led. And I agree with her. I said, yes, I did too. And I'm just mortified because the last thing I wanted to do was cause a distraction today in my friend Kim's training class that was going to upset a bunch of people and possibly jeopardize the relationships I have with them and the friendships that my children have with their children. This was a major fear come true. What are the odds that someone would say what that woman said? And that woman, by the way, can I also just say that I really like her? So we navigate for a minute. Jennifer says, well, just explain to me. She, she lays the statement of faith out on the, on the table. And she says, explain to me what it is you don't believe. Because I just want you to be in our community so bad. And I said, well, I have to tell you something. Previously, I was so fixated on you getting mad at me about the Trinity that I completely didn't even hear you read the thing about hell. And I don't actually believe in hell. And I know that like not even all biblical Unitarians agree on this. Yeah. But this is just my my faith. This is what I believe. Yeah. And by don't believe in hell, you mean don't believe in the eternal torment version of hell. Let's get technical. I am I'm an annihilationist. (laughs) Okay. Honestly, I feel like that sounds annihilation. Like that's, that's scary too. That's yeah. if we're worried that people won't be motivated. I feel like that's motivation. <laughs> okay. I mean, whatever. I don't want to be there either way. Right. Fair enough. So, and I tell her that I say, look, this is not a big deal. And she said, I'm so frustrated because I just can't see that this would ever come up any of it or matter or be relevant in a foundations level class. Mm. I don't see this. And I'm so frustrated that this is the rule. I'm going to go talk to some people. So she leaves the room and she went and talked to a couple other people. And she came back about five minutes later. And by this time, like I am sweating, Mark, like my face is sweating. My hair is sticking to my neck. I'm like, I'm trembling a little bit. And also like, I'm really wishing I would have worn the fragile shirt because. Because your dog. (laughs) Not today, you know. (laughs) Well, You came here fearing that you would not find a group of people that you could stay connected with. And this was that group, right? Yes. This was it. Yes, you're right. (sighs) And here it comes, the blow. 
And I'm going to leave you with that cliffhanger. (laughs) You'll have to listen to episodes 33 and 34 of the UCA podcast to hear her whole story and find out what happens. It's really a story of faith and action in various ways. You'll also want to check out the other episode she mentioned, episode six, working at the Colson Center, which is an evangelical apologetics outfit featuring the delightful Anna Brown. There's even an episode in which I get more personal than I get on this podcast. That's episode 38, The Making of a Trinity Nerd. (laughs) When the Trinity's podcast returns, back to the nerds. As I record this, the Biblical Unitarian podcast hosted by Dr. Dustin Smith is up to 205 information-packed episodes. Dr. Smith's passion is understanding the Bible and bringing the insights of contemporary biblical scholarship to the masses. I'm going to play you some excerpts now from episode 204 called An Introduction to the Theme of Misunderstanding in the Gospel of John. This, in my view, is an absolute key to correctly interpreting this book, and people who don't have this key regularly misinterpret that gospel. Here's Dr. Smith. What is the theme of misunderstanding, and how does it promote the Jesus that's presented in the Gospel of John? Warren Carter, in his book, John, Storyteller, Interpreter, Evangelist, which is a book that I highly recommend if you're a biblical Unitarian, Warren Carter defines the theme of misunderstanding in these three steps. Step number one, Jesus makes an ambiguous statement in the narrative of the Gospel of John. Step number two, the conversation partner misunderstands what Jesus says, either by interpreting it literally or by asking an inappropriate question. Step number three, either Jesus or the narrating author explains the statement, although sometimes an explanation is missing, but it's clearly implied. Now, Warren Carter argues that this particular theme appears 18 times in the Gospel of John, and out of those 18 times, it shows up Eight times where the conversation partner is the Jerusalem leaders. Another eight times to where the conversation partner is the actual disciples of Jesus. And two times when the conversation partner is the crowds. So I think it's interesting that those who misunderstand Jesus, at least in the Gospel of John, are just as frequently the Jews, the Jewish leaders, the Jerusalem leaders, as well as the disciples. So I think that's a very interesting point to consider. 
Let's look at the first Johannine misunderstanding within the narrative, which is about destroying and raising the temple. John chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. It says that Jesus answered them, and Jesus is speaking to the Jews while Jesus is situated in the Jerusalem temple. Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it took 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. So let's look at this passage and see if we can see the three steps in the theme of misunderstanding. Step number one, has Jesus saying something that is ambiguous? Here we can see in verse 19, Jesus speaking. He said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Clearly the rebuilding of a temple as massive as the Jerusalem temple would be absolutely ridiculous to claim that it could take place over the course of three days or even three years. We can see this in the response. Jews say that it took 46 years to build or technically rebuild this temple, and you're going to raise it up in three days. So here we can see the identity of the dialogue partners. It's the Jews. They disagree with Jesus, but they, according to step number two, they interpret what Jesus says literally, even to the point of absurdity. So we can also see in verses 21 through 22, the explanation that's given by the narrator in regard to this particular point, which is important, because it also tells us that when Jesus was raised from the dead, there, by the way, the passive indicating that God raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus didn't raise himself. When he was raised, when the Father raised Jesus from the dead, Jesus' disciples remembered that he said this. So it's this post-resurrection remembrance. It's the perspective that they have, and they now understand from looking at it, after the resurrection. So there you have it. You have all three parts of the theme of misunderstanding. You have Jesus speaking something that is ambiguous in verse 19. You have the response of the dialogue partners who take it literally to the point of absurdity in verse 20. And you also have the clarification or the explanation, this given by the narrator in verses 21 through 22. So it's really common for people to read this passage and to see how the theme of misunderstanding functions. And they'll look and they'll say, okay, Jesus' body is the true temple. Clearly, Jesus wasn't talking about the literal temple, the Jerusalem temple in which he is currently standing. He's not talking about the physical building. He's talking about his own body. But I don't think a lot of readers have taken the time to really understand what is it that Jesus is saying. What does it mean for Christian theology to say that Jesus himself is the true temple? What was the temple? Well, the temple was the building in which God's presence would dwell. After Solomon built the first temple, according to 1 Kings chapters 6-8, through the presence of God came and indwelt the temple, specifically in the Holy of Holies. And that was the point of the Holy of Holies, was that it was where God was residing. Yes, God 
was in heaven, but God would extend himself and God would dwell, usually with this pillar of light, in the Jerusalem temple. And it indicated God's presence in the temple, and it indicated God's favor with the Jewish people, with the people of God. So what does it mean that Jesus is now this temple? What does it mean that the human Messiah is now the temple? Well, what it does mean is that Jesus is now the locus of God's presence. Now, this was already told to us earlier in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 1, verse 14, where the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us, and we beheld his glory. God's creative and powerful word became embodied in the human Jesus, and it tabernacled among us, using this tabernacling temple language, and we beheld God's glory. We beheld that glory, that glory which formerly was indicating God's presence dwelling in the temple, and now we have it embodied in the human Jesus. Jesus is functioning as the new temple, the human temple functioning as the authorized agent of God. Of course, we could see this even in the Gospel of John, where the Gospel of John will say that Jesus is claiming that the Father is in me. If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. The words that Jesus is speaking are not Jesus' words, they're the Father's words. Jesus speaks in a way to which God is actually, in a sense, dwelling in him as this new temple. Specifically, it's the Father. Let's be clear that the Father is the only true God in the Gospel of John. So Jesus is saying that the Father is dwelling in him as he functions as this new temple. But Jesus says this as a human being, as a man. In the Gospel of John, Jesus is described as a human being far more frequently than even Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Of course, this theology would not be new to the time of the writing of the Gospel of John. Even the Apostle Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, said that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself. And so, here in the Gospel of John, God was clearly working through Jesus, but Jesus is being defined as the new temple already. Of course, you could see how that could even be misunderstood, that could be taken to an extreme, of an actual embodiment of God and Jesus. I think that would be pressing this too hard. This is the glory of God being with Jesus, being in Jesus in the way that the glory of God was present in the temple. As with the other podcasts in this episode, I've got links to that podcast where you can see their entire range of episodes and also a link to the episode that I quoted from in this little love letter to these other podcasts. Dr. Smith has a very wide range of discussions. He tackles a lot of the hard passages for biblical Unitarians. He argues in original ways for Unitarian understandings. I don't always agree with his judgments, but I always learn something. And I'm sure that you will as well, so I commend this podcast to you. Back to the ordinary people now. Another podcast I enjoy listening to is the Bible Feed podcast. It technically has four hosts, Dan Weatherall, Paul Davenport, Josh Dean, and Lawrence Davenport, all English Christadelphians. This is very much a podcast by lay people and for lay people. They know what their audience is. They know who they're trying to reach. 
And it's a very accessible, relaxed, enjoyable, and low-key sort of podcast. They're trying to approach the Bible using common sense, and it's not that they don't want the scholarly helps. They do, but they're not trying to win arguments. They're not necessarily trying to convince everybody of their view most of the time, but they are doing their best to bring the actual meaning of the text to the people. There is a unique Christadelphian vibe to the whole thing, and for more about that, I would recommend checking out Podcast 10 called What is Bible Feed All About? And you can hear a lot more about the unique perspective that they bring to this endeavor. Having said that, they don't necessarily focus on things that are unique to Christadelphians. It really is a Bible-centered podcast that you could happily recommend to anybody particularly somebody who doesn't know much about the Bible and who wants to get a leg up on understanding what it's all about. So I'm going to play for you a a short excerpt from episode 31 called Thinking About the Trinity, Part 3, Q&A with Tom Gaston. And in this episode, host Paul Davenport is interviewing Dr. Thomas Gaston about the Bible and the Trinity. And I really liked these remarks that he gave towards the end of the episode. We did receive one question, which was essentially stop arguing about Trinitarian versus Unitarianism. We all uh, we all love Christ. Uh, let's let's get on and work together. So the question is, why does this matter? What real implications are there for this kind of debate on Christian life and practice? I think first things first. I would have some sympathy with the questioner. We don't want to spend all our time arguing and disagreeing, and there are more important things to do in our faith. You know, when Paul says in. Corinthians 13 about, you know, the three remain faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. You know, this tells us where our priority should be lying, right? So I've got some sympathy with that as as a concept, but it does matter for a number of reasons. I mean, firstly, you know, as Christians, we're sort of, we are committed to truth, and there is value in wanting to know as best as we can which things are true. So, you know, we should not be shying away from that. But also, our understanding of God is central to our relationship with God. And if we don't have a good understanding of who God is, that's going to impact our relationship. But it does have real practical significance in just the things you do day to day. When I was at, at uni, I spent a lot of time with Christians of all sort of flavors. And I remember once I was at a meeting with some Trinitarian Christians, and they decided that, you know, they hadn't prayed to God as the Spirit for a long, you know, they just hadn't really done it. So they thought, well, wait a minute, you know, the Spirit is, we, we believe the Spirit mm-hmm. is, you know, one of the, the persons of the Trinity, we should be praying to this too, so let's have this prayer meeting. And of course, as a Unitarian, this is not something that I would have ever even dreamed of doing. It's not something that yeah. crosses my mind, because we don't believe the Spirit is a person. We believe the Spirit is the power and presence of God. So the idea of praying to the Spirit doesn't make sense. Paul encourages us to pray through the Spirit, but you know we never never encouraged in the New Testament to pray to the Spirit. So this very simple question of well, who do you pray to? Right, it has yeah. real you know significance. Then you know if if you believe there are three persons, then absolutely you should be praying to all three equally. I mean that only seems fair. And you know if there are Trinitarians out there who are not praying to God the Spirit very often. Mm why right if that's what you believe and again this is a question of who do you worship we talked earlier about this you know the early christians worship and how they sort of have this special concept of worship for god the father and then you know obviously they reference the lord jesus christ that's you know going to be different for you one of the i guess observations that you might make about a lot of sort of evangelical worship songs there's a lot of worship of jesus right? there's a lot of sort of songs about jesus and directed to jesus hmm. Um, yeah. And I don't, again, don't have a problem with, you know, worthy is the lamb who sits upon the throne. I don't have a problem with reverencing Jesus. Yeah. But our Heavenly Father is the one who should be given all worship. You know, whenever you talk about glory and honor, you know, in the New Testament, it is 
glory and honor to God through Jesus Christ. Jesus is very rarely singled out for glory. So the idea of you know putting Jesus above the our heavenly Father in the way that we worship is something we should be concerned about. Um, and actually, again, as Unitarians, we would want to direct that special worship, that special significance to the Father, yeah. whilst reverencing the Son. And I think just you know just on a purely practical note, who are you talking about when you talk about God? So when we pray, you know, whenever somebody prays and says, you know, dear God, we're imagining God as a person. You know, this idea of there is one person who answers to the name God isn't actually consistent with Trinitarian theology. Sort of extending that slightly in praying, for example, for forgiveness. How do you ask for forgiveness and who do you go to to ask for forgiveness? If Jesus is entwined with God and, and you need another mediator to achieve that, yeah. then that's where the role of priests has has come into play yeah absolutely uh, in a very different different practical sense yeah that's a really good point so that was part of episode 31 thinking about the trinity another episode i heard recently that i thought is representative of what they do is episode 39 i and the father are one which focuses on what is the meaning of that famous statement that jesus makes in john 10 30 So the Bible feed is not just for the lads and lasses. It's not just for Brits. It's also for Yanks and all English-speaking people. Recommend it to your friend who would be completely intimidated by listening to the Biblical Unitarian podcast or the Trinities podcast. And listen to it yourself when you're looking for some good, edifying biblical content that won't make your brain hurt. Just a teaser, God willing, in 2022, you'll be hearing a lot more from Dr. Thomas Gaston, in connection with the Unitarian Christian Alliance. For my next podcast, we're going to go back to the nerdy stuff. His YouTube logo says TAC, that stands for The Analytic Christian. And this is a video podcast mainly, hosted by Jordan Hampton. He's not himself a Christian philosopher, but he appreciates Christian philosophy and sees the value both in Christian philosophy and in applying those philosophical skills to theological questions. He does have a podcast that you can find in the way that you find any podcasts. I think he might have abandoned it in favor of the YouTube Talking Heads format. In any case, if you just search YouTube for The Analytic Christian, you'll find an amazing array of material. You might remember hearing about him and hearing a little bit from him recently on this podcast because it was his show that hosted my debate with Dr. Andrew Loke about the deity of Christ. Again, this is mind-stretching stuff. It's not particularly biblically oriented. It's much more philosophically and theologically oriented. Some of it is oriented towards defending traditional small-c Catholic claims like two natures, Christology, the compatibility of divine foreknowledge and human freedom, the Trinity and things like that. But then there's a lot of the content which I think any Christian can make use of, arguments for the existence of God, material about Reformed epistemology, different perspectives about free will, how God relates to morality, how to understand the atonement, mind-body dualism, hell, and other subjects like that. He's interviewing very well-trained and brilliant people. You're not always going to agree with them, but you're always going to get something thought-provoking and challenging. I'm going to play you a little bit of his interview with Dr. Timothy Paul. He calls it Ask a Scholar Number 12. How can Jesus be divine if he didn't know the time of his return? 
In this whole episode, Dr. Timothy Paul, who is a lovely person and a brilliant Roman Catholic analytic theologian and philosopher of religion, surveys five different options for how an Orthodox Christian might approach this seeming matter of Jesus's ignorance in Mark 13, 32. Like a good philosopher, he starts off with two opposed arguments. At least they can't both be sound if there can't be true contradictions. He calls them the pro and con arguments. So a pro argument, why think he did know the day and the hour? Well, one divine prerogative is omniscience. And anyone fully divine then is omniscient. And according to traditional Christology, Christ was fully divine. Thus, Christ was omniscient. And if omniscient, then he knew the day and the hour. So he knew the day and the hour. Seems like a good argument for pro. An argument for con that he didn't in fact know? Well, he says in uh, Mark 13, 32, quote, But of that day and that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. End quote. And you find the same in Matthew 24. Now, Jesus is no liar, and he says he didn't know. So he didn't know. So you've got a pro-argument and a con-argument for the thesis under discussion. Did he know or not? First, he discusses, well, should you accept that there are true contradictions? Like most philosophers, including myself, he says no. And you might think, well, hey, isn't the answer supposed to be that Jesus knows everything as divine, but doesn't know everything as human? Well, actually, this, as Dr. Paul explains, is rejected by some famous people in Catholic tradition, including the famous St. Thomas Aquinas. Now you might say that both the arguments are good, they're both truth-conducive, but they conclude to things that are true in different senses or in different ways. And the, the most common way to do that, you see this a lot in church history, is to use a qua approach or a, an according to his approach. So Christ, according to his divine nature, is omniscient. And Christ, according to his human nature or qua his human nature, is ignorant. And so you get both being true. He's both omniscient and ignorant and no contradiction here. That approach is considered, but it's ultimately rejected by Aquinas and some other folks. Aquinas talks about it in his Compendium of Theology, a paragraph 242. On that approach, it's true in one sense that Christ knew, and it's true in another sense that he didn't, and it's definitely not true in the same sense that he both did and didn't. You get rid of that same sense contradiction and just leave different senses. And when you have those different senses, the proponent of this view says, it's no different than saying Christ is straight with respect to his leg and bent with respect to his arm. You have these different parts, and they can be certain different ways, and in virtue of those different ways, the whole can be different ways. Now, like I said, Aquinas didn't uh, accept that view, and he gave a couple of reasons for that. One is he thought, he's following John here, the Gospel of John, the first chapter. John says, in Christ is God's fullness of grace and truth. And if you think that, you might think he's not ignorant of things, and so not ignorant of this particular point of truth. Moreover, same gospel, fifth chapter, says Christ received authority over all to judge, and received it, and here's a quote, because he is the son of man, end quote. And Aquinas puts heavy emphasis on that word man, so he shouldn't be ignorant in his human nature of the appointed time for him to judge. Because if he were ignorant in that way, he wouldn't have been given all judgment because he'd be lacking some judgment, namely the time at which he's going to judge. Now, here's a third reason. Those are two from Aquinas from Scripture. But a third reason goes like this. 
you might think that Christ is a deceiver if this is the way that everything shakes out. Have you ever caught like a kid who's stealing candy from a candy jar and you're there, right? You see him do it and he's got two hands and you say, hey, little Billy, what you got in your hand? And he's got one that's full of nothing and he, he shows you the full of nothing hand, right? In that situation, you might say, no, Billy, what's in the other hand? And lo and behold, there's candy in the other hand. Well, Christ is a little bit like that in this case. He's got two intellects. He claims ignorance on account of, well, one of them. But if you look in the other, there's no ignorance there. It's like he's, you know, he's got ignorance in one and candy in the other, ignorance in one, knowledge in the other. And so it just seems like the kid with the candy. And that has the mark of duplicity to it. And you might think the Lord did not have a mark of duplicity to him. Now, in reply to that third objection, the objection from duplicity to the second approach, that's the, the qua approach. That's where we are right now in, in my mental. Right, right. Yeah. Some of the Christian tradition in other contexts have defended a sort of view called mental reservation. So they think that when Christ says something like the son doesn't know, Christ then adds a mental unvoiced modifier in his human intellect. And you see this, for instance, in cases of um, during the time in which it was illegal to be a Catholic in England, there were Jesuits, many Jesuits coming over to provide the sacraments to Catholic laity there. And some of these men were tortured and killed. And they had lots of thought about what you're allowed to say, given the fact that they knew your arms would be cut off your body while you still live if you were found out to be a priest. So some of these people would claim that you're allowed to say, I am not a priest, as long as you mentally add of Apollo or some such thing in your mind, such that the claim is true, but clearly intentionally misleading to the listener. Now, you're no doubt familiar with approaches like this for like the Nazi at the door case. If you have mm. Jews hiding in the basement, the Nazi asks you, do you have any Jews here? There are ways people say you can mentally reserve and say no and mean something slightly different by it. So I'm not saying nobody holds this sort of view. You can find it in places to find defenses of it. But that's a reply to that third sort of objection to the qua move you can make here. So we didn't really hear Dr. Paul's view. What we heard is somebody with intellectual integrity as carefully as they can exploring the options. And that's the type of analysis of the issues that you will hear from these well-trained Christian philosophers on this podcast. When the Trinity's Podcast returns, a podcast both for the nerds and for everyone else. So we've had podcast for nerds, we've had podcast for ordinary people. My next podcast is the Restitutio podcast produced by Pastor Sean Finnegan. This is another one of my favorite podcasts and there is really an incredible variety of different kinds of episodes. Some of the episodes are interviews. I particularly like those myself. On the other hand, some of the episodes are Pastor Finnegan's teachings at Atlanta Bible College or at his church in New York State. 
You'll particularly want to check out his recent episodes, 411 through 424, where he's giving kind of a biblical, historical, and theological overview of Unitarian Christian theology. Anything Sean Finnegan does is worth listening to. You can count on it. So there's plenty in this podcast for those with theological, biblical, and historical interests, but there's also a lot just about Christian living and integrity and what it takes to follow Christ day to day, how to reach the world with the gospel and things like that. And one thing he does that these other podcasts don't do is he will personally curate certain material from others and just present it. So you might hear a sermon by a Trinitarian Christian. It's not going to be pushing Trinitarian theology, but it's going to have something valuable in it. And the excerpt I'm going to play for you is by a member of his church named Matthew Elton, and he's giving a teaching entitled Serving God as a Single Person. Biblically speaking, the single life is not inferior to the married life. And I think sometimes in Christian culture, you know, as Christians, we want to affirm the goodness of marriage, especially if we feel like the secular culture is, is coming up against marriage. So as Christians, we want to affirm the goodness of marriage. But sometimes we can take that to such an extreme that maybe consciously or subconsciously, we look down on the single life as if it's inferior to marriage. If that were true, then Jesus was inferior because he was single. He was single. He, he never married, yet he lived the most full human life ever imaginable and never sinned. He is the example, he is the first fruits of the new creation, the new humanity. He found his fulfillment 100% in God. He did not need to marry to find fulfillment. And his life was by no means inferior to the life of a married person. So one of the biggest myths is that the single life is inferior to the married life. However, throughout scriptures, we see the examples of single men of God who serve God in their singleness. Another great example that we're going to look at in a minute is the Apostle Paul. Apostle Paul, from what we know, never married. Yet, who else was used by God like the Apostle Paul was used? I mean, other than Jesus, it's hard to think of another man who was used as powerfully as the Apostle Paul. And yet, he was single. There is something that we need to be aware of is that as Christians, we want to really affirm the, the goodness of the marriage commitment and that it's a God-ordained and God-designed thing, and we want to affirm his goodness. But we have to be careful not to turn it into an idol. Contrary to popular belief, marriage is not forever. That might be a shock to some people. But, but uh, in the Bible, in Matthew twenty-two thirty, Jesus said at the resurrection, so he's talking about the future resurrection when he comes back and when the kingdom is fully come, at the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels of heaven. So marriage is an incredible gift for this life, but it's not the end-all, be-all. And it is a lie to think that you need to be married in order to be used by God or to find fulfillment in life. Our culture looks at marriage as a happily ever after, right? So we expect our spouse to just fulfill everything, right? <laughs> but that's, that's not a biblical view of marriage. If you expect your spouse to fulfill all of your hopes and dreams, you're placing a burden upon them that they cannot bear. And it is idolatry to expect something from a spouse that only God can provide. Marriage is an incredible gift. It's part of God's design for the continuation of the human species. It's, it's part of his design for the family. And it should be honored. But it's not the end-all, be-all. As Christians, we need to see through marriage to the actual greater truth that marriage represents, and that is the relationship between Christ and the church. And that's what the Apostle Paul talks about. So the good news for single people is you don't have to wait until you're married to find fulfillment and to be used by God. You can be used by God now, 
you can find your fulfillment in Christ right now. So that's good news. Fulfillment in life, contentment in life, satisfaction in life, it's ultimately it's found only in Christ. Jesus said in John 6.35, whoever comes to me will never be hungry. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. So while we want to affirm the goodness of marriage, we have to be careful not to make marriage into an idol, where we start looking to our spouse for our fulfillment instead of looking first to God and to Jesus Christ. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to look here. This is the main text on singleness in the Bible. And this is where the Apostle Paul, he specifically addressed singleness, specifically. You know, Paul himself, he was never married, yet he was used by God more powerfully than almost anyone. And his life is is a great example of a single life, what it looks like to serve God as a single person. Beginning in verse 7, he says, I wish that all men were even as I myself am, which is a single man. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in one manner, another in that. I say to the unmarried and to widows, it is good for them if they remain as I. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now take a look at verse 25. He says, concerning virgins. So here he's specifically talking to the single person, because from a biblical perspective, the single life is a celibate life. So when he's he's referring to the virgins, he's specifically saying to the single people, I have no command of the Lord, but I give an opinion as one who, by the mercy of the Lord, is trustworthy. I think then that it is good in view of the present distress, it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Yet such will have trouble in this life, and I'm trying to spare you. Now, what's interesting about this passage, Paul's attitude towards marriage is shocking for many Christians today. Even within Christian culture, we think of marriage as a happily ever after, right? But Paul says here that if you marry, you will have trouble. (laughs) I want to emphasize, in no way is Paul putting down marriage. In other places in his letters, he affirms the the beauty and the goodness of marriage, and he even uses it as an illustration of Christ in the church. So in no way is Paul anti-marriage. But Paul is realistic about marriage. Paul understands that there are struggles in the single life, there's also struggles in the married life. Marriage is not going to solve all your problems. And that's important for single people to understand. Paul is realistic about marriage. He understands that the biblical view of marriage is sober and serious. It's a serious commitment that is hard for some people to accept. Singleness is defined as being not married. So anybody, when I'm talking about single people, I'm talking about anybody who's not married. If you think about it, you know, just thinking about the way that our culture views singleness, even the definition of singleness is, is kind of inherently negative. We, we define singleness as being not married. Yet rarely would someone define marriage as being not single. Yet that's equally true. That's equally true. But in our culture, we typically think of marriage as a good thing, singleness as a bad thing. But I want to show you from the scriptures today that the scriptures present a different view. The scriptures show that both marriage and singleness are good. And God is able to use both for for his purposes. Good stuff. For the rest of that teaching, check out Restitutio Podcast 409, Serving God as a Single Person by Matthew Elton. By the way, we had the privilege of working with Matthew Elton. He has a video production business, and he's the one who the Unitarian Christian Alliance had uh, to film and edit videos from the conference. That was a real delight. Uh, He's a talented guy. And obviously, a Christian who is really concerned to dig into the Bible, to let it renew his mind, and to share that with fellow believers. 
And that's the type of content you get at Restitutio. A good balance, something for everybody. History, theology, yes. Christian living, yes. Interviews and personal stories, yes. So be sure to check that out. There's an incredible backlog of over 400 episodes, as I mentioned, at restitutio.org. When the Trantis Podcast returns, a podcast whose title was inspired by The Drudge Report. podcast I want to share with you is The One God Report, hosted by Bill Schlegel. And if you don't know about Bill Schlegel, you'll want to check out some excellent Restitutio episodes in which he tells his story and also discusses the Bible and theology. But in short, Bill Schlegel was a professor at the Israel Extension of the Master's University. He is fluent in modern Hebrew, and he has taught biblical Hebrew And more or less on his own, he realized that the Jesus of the New Testament is not God, but rather is a man approved by God. The One God Report is an insightful, passionate, sometimes combative exploration of biblical Unitarian themes and the Bible. Bill Schlegel is a professor at heart. He's someone who's concerned to teach, and he does a good job presenting his material. In some recent episodes, he's been presenting the audio of his October 2021 lecture at the Unitarian Christian Alliance Conference entitled, Finding Evidence for the Deity of Christ in the Old Testament is Not a New Testament Exercise. Here's part of that. Finding evidence or hints for the deity of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament is an activity which began in the centuries after the New Testament was written. Such efforts are foreign to the New Testament. Based on Jesus' own post-resurrection appeals to the Old Testament as described in the last chapter of the Gospel of Luke and the apostolic sermons of Peter and Paul recorded in the book of Acts, this presentation gives evidence that Jesus and the apostles never appealed to the Old Testament to demonstrate the deity of Christ, but rather to demonstrate the suffering, death, burial, resurrection, and exaltation of the human Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. Likewise, and I think all the more so, and in some ways a paper doesn't even need to be presented about this, neither Jesus nor any New Testament author ever appealed to the Old Testament to show that God is a trinity. I personally have never heard somebody say, oh, Paul was quoting that verse to show that God is a trinity. I've never heard somebody say that. I have heard people go to the Old Testament and say, oh, see, that's evidence of the deity of Jesus, and the apostle was trying to show us that. But I've never heard anybody say the apostle was trying to show us from the Old Testament that God is a trinity. In the age of the internet, if you haven't heard any of these yet, you can easily find books, articles, lectures, podcasts, sermons, where an Old Testament passage is expounded on to show the deity of Christ. 
A few of the favorites you can see up here. Genesis 1.26, that's usually for the, maybe the Trinity or maybe Jesus is one person uh, there that's being spoken to. Genesis 18 and 19 will be one that I look at. Some people think this is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus as the angel of the Lord coming to visit with Abraham. Psalm 110.1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Isaiah 7.14, behold, the young maiden shall conceive. Isaiah 9.6 will be the other verse that I look at. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God. See, there's the deity of Jesus in the Old Testament. That's never a New Testament author that makes that claim. Somebody made that claim later. Jeremiah 23, 6, Micah 5, 2, Zechariah 12, 10. And it always kind of surprises me, a new one that will come up every now and then. In a more nuanced fashion, we've all heard people that will try to explain Deuteronomy 6, 4, that yud heh vav the name of the personal God of Israel, is one. Well, they'll say, well, look at Genesis 1-5, where an evening and a morning is one day. See, there's more than one in one. Nobody is making that explanation from the New Testament. Okay? So more nuanced ones you can see here. Again, the Genesis 48, the claim that God and the angel are with a singular verb. It must be one somehow, etc. Let's go on to the road to Emmaus. It's a real place, by the way, the city of Emmaus. In Luke chapter 24, verse 25 to 27, it is recorded. Now, this is after Jesus has been raised from the dead, on the very day that he was raised from the dead. And he's walking with two disciples toward Emmaus. And he says to them, Jesus says, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses... And all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now let's note first the comprehensiveness of the words of Jesus with the word all three times, once in each of these sentences. He began to speak of all that the prophets have spoken. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted all the scriptures for them. It's very comprehensive, all the prophets, all the things concerning himself. As Jesus interpreted for the disciples all the things spoken in the prophets of all things concerning himself, was his deity among all of those things that he found in the Old Testament scriptures? Alas, not a word. As Jesus described all things concerning himself in the Hebrew scriptures, he mentioned nothing about his deity or his pre-incarnate existence. There's no record here of Jesus opening the Old Testament scriptures and speaking about the pre-existent eternal one, the divine son, the one who is himself God. Not a word. What did Jesus say? Instead, all the prophets have spoken about all things concerning himself. He interpreted for them all the scriptures. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter his glory? Not a word about his deity, only his suffering and subsequent being glorified. So when the resurrected from the dead Jesus appealed to and interpreted the scripture for these two disciples on the road to Emmaus, he found evidence for the suffering of the Messiah, subsequent entering into glory. Characteristics that fit an entirely human person, not God. Jesus said not one word about his supposed deity. Now, not only do we have a record of one time that Jesus spoke to the disciples on the day of his resurrection, but a second time in the Gospel of Luke, just a few verses down. 
It's at the evening time where Jesus appears to the apostles minus Thomas. He's the only one not there. Of course, Judas. And here's what's recorded. Luke 24, 44 to 47. Then he said to them, These are my words that I've spoken to you while I was still with you, that all things written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So again, Jesus appealed to the Torah of Moses, the teaching of Moses, the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms, that's the whole of the Old Testament, to explain, and it's comprehensive, all things written about me. See that phrase there? All things written about me in the law of Moses, prophets and the Psalms. Is the deity of Christ among those things that Jesus found in the Old Testament? If the deity of Messiah is to be found in the Hebrew Scriptures, this would have been one of the main places in the Bible where we would expect Jesus to open up the Old Testament passages to show his apostles his deity. Perhaps the apostles had not understood yet about his deity. But now, as he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures, that's the Old Testament, he could make his deity clear. Yet, as recorded, as we just read right here, Jesus did not draw out the deity of Christ from all things written in Moses, the prophets, and in the Psalms. Not one word about pre-incarnate existence or about being one member of a tri-personal God. No appeal to the Old Testament to declare, Christ is God incarnate, just like Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms said I would be. Nothing here about Jesus being the divine son. Instead, what were all things written in the law of Moses and the prophets, which Jesus opened their minds to understand, that the Christ should suffer on the third day, rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name. This is what Jesus found in the prophets. He wasn't going back and showing his deity in the Old Testament. As he just brilliantly pointed out, sometimes in understanding the New Testament, you need to pay attention to exactly what's there and also to what's not there. Check out the One God Report for more original, Bible-based, biblical Unitarian content, which does focus on the disagreements between mainstream, small-c Catholic traditions and how we Unitarian Christians understand the Scriptures. Is it just for nerds? No. Schlegel is a good and steady teacher. He doesn't try to do too much in too little time. And you'll learn interesting things from him no matter what level you're at. For my last podcast, I'm going to go solidly back into the nerd camp. Sorry, regular people. So the last podcast I want to share with you is the Logos Institute podcast. On its logo, it says Pogos, and it has a three-colored purple trinity symbol. This is a bi-weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Jonathan C. Rutledge, who's a junior research fellow with the Logos Institute for Analytic and Exegetical Theology at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. 
His co-host is Stephanie Nicole Norby, who's a doctoral student in theology, working under N.T. Wright and Oliver Crisp at the University of St. Andrews. Dr. Norby already has a Ph.D. in philosophy, and she's now working on one in theology as well. What Rutledge and Norby are trying to do is something that a lot of people won't understand. They're trying to navigate two very different and clashing academic cultures, which are the cultures of analytic philosophy and systematic theology. Now, you've heard me in this podcast mention analytic theology, and you might just assume this is just a branch of theology. Theoretically, yes, but in practice, most systematic theologians are highly suspicious at best of analytic theologians. Most theologians prefer to do their work using the philosophical tools of some prior age, like the tools present in the days of the Church Fathers, or the time of St. Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century, or you know the sort of tools that you would find in European philosophy in the 19th and 20th centuries. What makes analytic theology different is the methods and tools it uses It tries to apply insights particularly from logic, metaphysics, epistemology, and ethics to aid the theological cause. The thought being, why shouldn't we use the best tools we have, and those are found nowadays in the analytic philosophy tradition. So this is very much a podcast by and for a small elite group of people, It very much reflects the interests and the sensibilities of PhDs in theology and or analytic philosophy. So it's a lot like the Analytic Christian YouTube channel in that they're interviewing very highly educated and brilliant people about difficult topics, but there's a bit less analytic philosophy, a less wide range of philosophical topics that they get into. It's more theological. I'm going to play for you an excerpt of a recent episode that actually doesn't have those two normal hosts that I mentioned. It has a couple of guest hosts, and they're interviewing a famous analytic theologian named Dr. Thomas Williams, who teaches at the University of South Florida. And he's an expert on medieval philosophy and theology, and specifically an expert on the famous philosopher-theologian Anselm, Bishop of Canterbury. In this part I'm going to play for you, he expounds the basics of Anselm's thinking about atonement, how it is supposedly that Christ's death leads to our forgiveness. It's from a book of Anselm's called in Latin, Cur Deus Homo, Why is God a Man? So here's Dr. Williams giving his expert summary of these influential ideas. The idea is that we human beings have put ourselves in a situation of immense and infinite gravity by our sin. And that in order for reconciliation to happen, in order for things to be set right, in order for the justice of God to be satisfied, as it were, uh, not the wrath of God, as in Christ alone, very popular song has it, it's not the wrath of God being satisfied, it's it's the justice of God being satisfied for Anselm. Something has to be done about our sin. One way of rectifying the order would be just to punish us. But the problem with punishment is it, as it were, writes the moral balance, satisfies justice, but it leaves us in our sinful condition. So now we're wretchedly sinful and punished for it. Yay for justice, I guess. But maybe Anselm is not enough of a Kantian to find that very satisfying. 
because he doesn't just want the moral order balanced or God's justice to be satisfied. He wants God's purposes for us to be fulfilled. He wants our relationship with God to be restored because that's what God wants for us. That's why he created us in the first place. But in order for that to happen, God can't simply, as it were, pretend that we didn't sin. He can't merely forgive us because that leaves. And then here's where we get to the commercial language that people dislike. But in a short exposition, it's hard to get away from it. That leaves us with a debt unpaid. You can rephrase the commercial language right out of it. It just, it just takes a little bit longer, right? It, it leaves us having failed to do the most fundamental thing that we are intended to do and that God means for us to do. And our failing to do it is not rectified by giving us a do-over. It has to be rectified by our doing it, by our discharging the debt, paying the recompense, fulfilling the obligation by our Anselm's word is spontaneously, of our own purposes, of our own accord, returning to God. The problem is we can't do that because we put ourselves in a situation where we can't want the right things, or if we can want the right things, we can only want them for the wrong reason. We have thrown away our love of justice. We have squandered it for what we thought was going to be a temporary happiness of being like God's as we were promised by the deceiver. And so we cannot of our own accord, we don't have the right kinds of purposes in us anymore. We cannot of our own accord come back to God, but God wants us to come back to God. Only God has the power to do it. So God has to infiltrate the human race as it were, and in a half-assed sort of way. God actually has to take human nature upon himself so that the infinite power of God and the infinite seriousness of the human failure are combined as it were. So that the reconciliation can arise both from God, who has the capacity to initiate it, and from human beings from whom, in the state of things, it ought to come. It's only by becoming incarnate, it's only by the existence of a God-man, that satisfaction can be made, or the relationship can be restored, or reconciliation can be accomplished. Once you see that, let's see, I've kept as much as possible away from the language of debt, because otherwise it really does sound like it's final jeopardy, and we've racked up a, a negative infinity balance, and the you know, and only God has infinity amounts of dollars to bet, and but only we owe it. And you can make it sound crude if you want to sound crude. I've tried to make it not sound crude because honestly, I basically think this is the story. I think it is only. Do I really agree with Anselm that it was only through the incarnation and the voluntary self-offering of the God-Man that we can be reconciled to God? I think I do believe that. You're not supposed to believe that. That's an extremely bizarre thing to believe, right? Nobody believes that in the Middle Ages, by the way. So if you want another answer to how is Anselm distinctive or individual or unique, pretty much nobody agrees with Anselm on this point. Augustine says, I mean, obviously, obviously God didn't have to become current. That would be silly. God can do anything. Leo the Great, same thing. So you got earlier people, Gregory the Great also. Later people, Aquinas, Scotus, they all agree. Eh, this God has to do it. Bonaventure, no. What were you thinking? Because for Anselm, if you can say, yeah, he could have done it another way, then you have not met the irrationality argument. And you may also not have met the unseemliness argument either. You certainly haven't met the irrationality argument for Anselm. So yeah, his point is that this is the only way it could be done. And then once you see that it was done, not merely as it were to satisfy some abstract sense of justice or to put the last piece of the puzzle into this ginormous universe puzzle that God really was determined to finish. But because God wanted to bring us into a loving knowledge of himself forever, 
then everything about the whole story is just transcendent with beauty. Just everything Christ says and does as the God-man is just gorgeous. And so it, it is indeed true that the manger and the cross are not God at his worst, but God at his best. Uh, so that's, that's the story, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> well, myself, I don't think that's the New Testament story. I don't think it says anywhere or assumes or implies or hints that only a God-man could atone. I don't think it says that God died for our sins. I think it says that God sent his one and only human son to die. But anyway, if you want to know what Anselm thinks, which has been very influential in the history of Christian thought, this is the kind of guy that you need to hear from. If you're trying to get a grip on atonement theories generally, see what you think is the right sort of thinking about atonement, which is an incredibly difficult subject, by the way. You need scholars like Dr. Thomas Williams to help you explore the options. So I do commend the Lagos Institute podcast to you. As I said, it is very beholden to the interests and the culture of academic systematic theology. Do they care about anything that's not in line with Catholic orthodoxy? Mm, not really. I mean, you might hear stuff that is out of line with that orthodoxy, but if you do, the person presenting it will be intending that it should fit in. Just intending to uphold the creedal tradition will gain you a lot of leeway. For more on the phenomenon I'm talking about, you could check out probably the funniest episode I've ever done on the Trinity's podcast, which is podcast 232, Trinity Club Orientation. But again, you can learn a lot from the scholars that they're interviewing, and I recommend this podcast to you. So that's my little love letter to eight podcasts that I recommend. I hope that you enjoy them. As you can tell, I don't think you should only listen to people you agree with. I think you should look for high quality material of various points of view. That's the way of a serious and determined truth seeker. Trust God and be patient enough to hear out the arguments of the various sides. If you have favorite episodes, let us know about them by leaving a comment on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. Tell us what your favorite episodes are and give us the links so that we can explore for ourselves. And speaking of links, the links to any episode that I've mentioned and also to the top level of these podcasts will be on that blog post for episode 342 at trinities.org. Thanks for listening. This week's thinking music has been the track Night Walk by Airtone. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org where you can listen to or download that entire track. If you love the Trinities podcast, please share this episode on social media like Twitter or Facebook. And help other people to find the podcast by giving us an honest rating and review in the iTunes store for your country. You can also support the Trinity's podcast by giving a certain donation per episode. If you're interested in that, please visit patreon.com slash trinities. Finally, let us know what you think. Give us a comment on the blog post for this episode. 
or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash trinities. The Trinities Podcast is supported by and made for thinking believers like you. Thanks for your support, prayers, and encouragement. listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.